Psalm 36, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are troubled, trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep, deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of God. A number of years ago, my family and I were meeting a friend in Central Park, and we were having a little bit of a picnic by an area they call the pool. It's a body of water somewhere around 100th Street. And we're sitting on a blanket eating, and if you've been to that area consistently, there are certain seasons where this green substance, I think it might be duckweed, I'm not sure what it is, but forms around uh, the body of water. And one of my kids, who was two at the time, went down towards the water, but to him couldn't see the line. He just thought it was an extension of grass, and so he stepped right in and went into the, into the it's not quite a lake, but whatever it is, the body of water there that they call the pool. It's not a pool. Uh, so I got up and, and ran and pulled him out, and everything wound up fine uh, in terms of his safety, but not in terms of my being dry and clean. So uh, for all of the caution I took of making sure that we had a blanket to sit on and I'm trying not to spill my food on me, uh, there I was wet and mossy uh, and needing to get through the rest of the time. So that's life. You know, you, you, you go out um, and th things spill on you and you uh, lean into your car and you get some, some dirt on you or you sit on something that somebody left in the subway seat. The problem is, it's also life when it comes to our interior being. Uh, we want to keep ourselves clean, good, having good, happy thoughts, being sound and solid. But in this world, we come into contact with lots of things, and that contact uh, impacts us. And, and here I'm using, a, a, you know, the language of Psalm 36 is quite strong, talking about evil and the wicked. But contact with evil, whether it's a subtle form or whether it's a more extreme form, uh, affects us, and it could be as simple as just reading the news over and over again, and at some point just being overwhelmed by how awful things are in the world. Or it could be so that somebody who means well, a parent or a coach, is just harsh, thinking they're motivating you, but over the years has given you a voice that you've internalized, that now when they're not around, there's always somebody yelling, you're not good enough. You're impacted by it. It's what happens when people bully you and slander you. It's what happens when you work for a corrupt person. It's what happened if you've suffered oppression or injustice. These experiences impact us. So even when we're removed from them, there's something about 
contact with evil, with trouble, with sin, with what's wrong that distorts us. And then what happens is it affects our souls, our spirits, our mental well-being. In Psalm 36, we're looking at this Psalm this week and next week. And today, you should try to consider some of the solutions. Um, we're going to highlight more of the invitation to a banquet and how God feeds and gives thirst, water to those who are thirsty. Next week, we'll look at the shadowy refuge and, and the light of God. But different ways of addressing the kind of concern that the writer of the psalm is aware of, which is there are people in the world that will drag us down. And so in the psalm, the first four verses are, are a reflection on somebody who's given over to evil. They're not resisting it. It's just consumed them. And verses 5 to, to 9, by contrast, are God whose greatness is unfathomable. It is so huge and vast um, that then in verses 10 and 11, the request comes uh, to the effect of, Lord, we, I want more of the, the fullness of this greatness, and I want you to protect me and keep me from being pulled in by this evil. Uh, and there's this theme of steadfast love that's important in this psalm that we want to be maintained in that because otherwise we will get dragged down. So in, in verse 12, there's, there's the wise understanding that we don't always see in real time. Sometimes it looks like those who are doing terrible things are getting away with it. If, if you play by the rules, people who don't play by the rules seem to have all the advantages. Uh, but wisdom says, but actually it never works out that way in the grand scheme of things. So in verse 12, there's this concern about the wicked being thrust down. That's the ultimate fate. And this psalm writer has the wisdom to say, I don't want to be thrust down either. I don't want to be pulled down, but I feel the pull. I feel the, the corruption coming into my life. So the prayer is, Lord, be steadfast. Remain with me. Watch over me and keep me from being pulled down. So this morning, I want to talk about those two dynamics, being pulled down, but then also being lifted up. So beginning with being pulled down, because that's the concern, that's the fear, and this is consistent with how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are holy, you are wonderful, your kingdom is glorious. But there's also a prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's a needs to be a constant concern. Even if we've said, I want my life to be oriented to, what, to pursuing what's good, to taking hold of what's right, to being somebody who remembers the greatness of God and has my heart stirred by it, it takes one incident, an accident, a crime, something that we couldn't see, but it, it comes out of nowhere, makes its mark. And even if we're spiritually sound, even if we're morally upright, um, we can be left in, in a long season of difficulty. And so in verses five to seven, there is this vision about God's greatness. And if you've ever had a glimpse of it, an experience in worship or a visitation from God or some sense of the beauty of the gospel, it could be various uh, kinds of thoughts or experiences, but, but just a, a brief touch point can be so joyful, so healing, so wonderful that if you've had even one experience, the odds are you want more of it. <laughs> you want it to continue. You want that to be what characterizes your life, but that's not what characterizes every day for any of us. The reality is we live in a world where God's glory is hard to see, and therefore, even if you're one of those who believe it's true, because you believe the message of the Bible or because you've experienced it, you still may not feel connected to it. And if you're sort of new to thinking about God or a life or Christianity, you may feel no connection. It may sound like a fairy tale kind of thing of something we tell ourselves because we want to feel good. 
assuming that this is a reality, it's a reality that we are not in sufficient contact with, and that creates a vulnerability that we easily get confused, discouraged, tempted, dragged down. And so uh, verses 1 to 4 are a bit of a case study of the person who fails to resist, a person who winds up given over and progressively gets worse. And there's wisdom to just watching what happens and recognizing those dynamics are at work for all of us. Maybe differently if we have a conversation, you have different thoughts, different temptations, different experiences, but all of us have vulnerability. And so in walking through verses one to four, uh, the first verse, uh, there's a bit of a, a textual challenge in translating it. Uh, no major theology hangs on it, but I think our translation uh, gets at, at something that's helpful to understand. Verse one says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And so that voice, a voice that speaks, a voice that worries you, that says, you know it's not right, but do it anyway, or that confuses you. You're not sure if it's right or wrong. Well, let me convince you that it's right, even though it's not. But it could be that critical voice that you've internalized that you can never escape, that's always telling you, why bother? You're not good enough. You're going to fail. Um, there's no getting around some voice, whether it's a cultural message, whether it's a relational message, whether it's just the way your own mind has been formed, something that's speaking negatively into your life. And we all know that we need to gain strategies just to make sure that voice doesn't become the controlling voice, that, that we can hear it, but we don't need to listen to it. But the problem is that's easier said than done. And so the concern here is that transgression hasn't simply spoken, but now it's becoming a, a guiding voice. It now speaks deep in his heart. Rather than having it swim around the head and simply ignore it, it's not true, we're letting it lead us into some bad choices and we catch ourselves and say, I'm just not going to listen. We find ourselves feeling uh, I have to, or it winds up sounding like the reasonable voice, it winds up getting deep into our heart, planting roots, and then that reshapes us for the worse. So in verse 2, uh, the person with this problem flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated, and hated there is about rejecting it. The sense that that the tension we all live with this voice, with the guilty conscience, there are ways we need to deal with it, but most of us don't have the tools or sometimes you're just having to deal with more than we have the capacity for. And so it makes its way into our heart so that we find it feels satisfying to dream of vengeance or to gossip or slander someone or, or to entertain certain fantasy kinds of thoughts that feel like they're providing relief, but actually they're allowing you to just run with this voice that's leading you astray. And so there's flattery. Um, flattery is manipulative. So uh, Christians are not against positive messaging. We should be upright. We should be encouragers. We should speak good to others. But there's a difference between seeing something good and telling somebody uh, what you're seeing. Uh, and there's a difference between flattery where you say it and you don't think it's true. But uh, if the person associates you with the positive, you have an edge on future manipulation. It's remarkable that we wind up doing this to ourselves. That, that as things that go against our conscience make our way down, rather than just facing it and dealing with it because it's too hard, we create space and then we, we flatter ourselves. In some way we say, but you know, it's really, you know, 
It's, it's not so bad, and uh, we, we make space for it, we make excuses for it, kind of like the spouse of the alcoholic that will call into their workplace and say, oh, they, you know, they have COVID and can't come in this week, um, but it's just another episode of covering up. Uh, it's remarkable how we can do that for ourselves. There are things that are just too difficult to face, and so we ignore them and make excuses for them. We reorient our lives around them, um, but then it comes out. So verse three, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. So that tension where we can't control these thoughts, if we could sort of make a space for it, try to bury it and hope nobody will see it, uh, at some point it comes out. And, and one of the ways it comes out is with our words. And it could be that weak moment where you're just uh, a bit stressed and so it comes out. And then if you're in the habit, not of exposing and dealing with, but of covering and hiding, then your words become flattery and deceit. Then the vulnerability of people saw what I don't want them to see, rather than coming clean and saying, you saw it, uh, please love me anyway, please help me. Um, you make an excuse for it, or more dangerously, as you progress, in the same way that you're trying to control your own thoughts to rationalize things, you create the impossible task of trying to control the thoughts of others. So now they saw something and you were invested in how they interpret what they saw. And it creates this odd distortion of reality that all of a sudden people are confused. You're no longer talking about what's going on. And if that is what is the way you're relating to a lot of people, it's gonna to lead to isolation. It's gonna to lead to just being alone with your terrible thoughts rather than having the kind of health and friendship where you could be encouraged and, and go and progress. So verse four, he plots trouble while on his bed. And those are two markers. One is just you find yourself constantly needing to reframe what you're thinking and wanna say. That's a good skill. Don't be the authentic Christian that tells everybody every terrible, dumb thought that you have. Work on restraining your terrible, dumb thoughts, but find ways to be open and transparent about it. But if you're not doing that at some point, if that's what's going around, it's impossible to face the silence and not have it be a place where you're just ruminating, where you're thinking about how terrible everybody is and what's wrong with the world and plotting ways that you're going to get even with people or having escapist fantasies. Look, everyone is vulnerable to these things. And there are hope, or there is hope for progress. But one of the things we need to do is recognize these dynamics. So when they're happening, we don't welcome. We don't welcome the evil voice, the critical voice. We learn to discern the voice of God from that voice so we can ignore it or uh, not give it space in our life or not listen to it. So the problem of being shaped by these things. And as you think about that this week, just as a generalized topic that would apply to everyone, I would say watch out for negativity. Watch out for how a lot of us have been learned to see situations where you notice what's wrong, where you assume the worst will happen. And you may have a good intention. You may, it may be a way of managing expectations. If, if I don't want to be disappointed, let me just assume the worst will always happen so I could be pleasantly surprised if something actually goes right. Um, but then you've actually you've put the odds on you're just assuming the worst for everything and that becoming more of how you're experiencing the world. So, so watch for where negativity is part of how you're thinking and realize there is God who will speak into your life and seek the efforts to, uh, to discern his voice, but don't assume the voice that's been critical to you for years is the voice speaking truth, is a voice you need to listen to, is fundamentally your voice. We're looking to seek the voice of God who speaks in a different way. In uh, Dante's Inferno, uh, 
uh, one of the sort of famous quotable moments is, is when, when they're, they pass through the gate and there's a sign above hell that says, abandon all hope, you who enter here. It's an interesting picture of what happens when, when you're so given over to this that then that becomes your dwelling place. It's an utterly hopeless place. Um, imperfect Christians in this real flawed world are told to have hope. That doesn't mean we're naive. That doesn't mean we're pretending uh, that, that everything is okay. It means that we don't need to bury the things that are too, too difficult for us to face, make excuses for them, and hope that at some point they won't work their ways out. Uh, instead, we should be wise to recognize, I should be diligent uh, to have, keep short accounts. And so otherwise we will get dragged down. What we want is to be lifted up. So that's what I want to talk about. And, and so you need the whole Bible to, to give you the map, how you go out. Uh, and so the, the ultimate solution for your deepest problems is not going to come in today's sermon. Uh, but in Psalm 36, there's a number of things that are helpful. I'm going to highlight one today and one next week where there is a sense in which uh, the imagery of being hungry and thirsty people are invited to a banquet. God will satisfy us. And it's that recognition that we're hungry and thirsty that we don't always appreciate that allows us to just sit and, and harp on the negativity because you're, you're feeling miserable. If, you, if, you, uh, you know, if you're 15 miles into a marathon, it's hard to have positive thoughts when it feels like you've got an impossible number of miles left and you're tired and, and you're, you're withered. And we get that. Um, but what about just having that deadline in two weeks and it's already been a grueling month and everyone's breaking down and that's your environment? And so, so the workplace is making it so that you're just feeling empty. And so what happens? How do you feel it? How do you satisfy it? Well, what, what do you do that you know you shouldn't do that gives you a moment of relief if that's where it tempts you? Or, or what dialogue are you having about the people around you that you reach a breaking point that starts to come out? Um, recognizing that there's a fundamental hunger and thirst is important because it says that every human being has a deep enough need and a complex enough problem that you can't solve it simply with tools and tactics. Tools and tactics are needed. Study them, get help. Um, but there's something deeper going on, which means that uh, what I'm getting at is it's not simply that it's 4 o'clock and you haven't had a glass of water since 8 in the morning. If that's the case, have a glass of water and then have a glass of water at 5 and a glass of water at 6. It would be more like going into uh, Morningside Park where Currently, there's a lab at Columbia University studying the algae at that little uh, body of water by the river, um, hoping to solve the problem of toxic water in the parks in our city. So if you're walking your dog and the dog is thirsty, do not let your dog drink that green water. What happens if you drink the water? You will feel quenched because it's liquid. But at some point, it will do its work. You are taking in not just H2O, but you're taking in something toxic, and therefore your body is going to want to get it out. And so whether it comes out one way or the other, let the congregant understand. Uh, that is a recipe to dehydration. Uh, a couple of days of your body trying to get rid of all of its liquids means you don't just need a glass of water. And that's where maybe going in and getting intravenous, having not just liquid but other things coming into your body in a different way is what's needed. The Bible pictures our human contact with evil in the world and sin, something that impacts us so profoundly that we don't just need uh, an encouraging word to help us move forward, but, but we're those that desperately need help. 
So in verse 12, the description of the wicked being unable to rise is a picture of that person who's just sick. And, you know, if, you're, if you've been uh, in bed for three days, even if Thursday is your, uh, your cycling day, you are unable to get up and do that. There's a spiritual reality where, where we're so caught in this web that we can't just get out of it and, and choose uh, to focus on positive things and to try to be decent people. Um, and so in verse six, as he's looking to God in his greatness, he says, man and beast you save. The hope of the world has to be in God who has not been impacted by evil. He has not um, been changed, but he is steadfast. He's the same, he's enduring in his love. And therefore our hope is that while our lives may be dynamic and having up and downs, we may have been decent person, persons or thought we were, but now we see that we're much worse than we imagined. What we need is not some advice, we need somebody who will come and save us. And in that regard, the, the imagery of the end of verse eight and, and uh, verse nine, is a reminder of what God offers to hungry and thirsty people who are unable to find satisfaction in the things that you're turning to that are only making you thirstier. Uh, those who look to God feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And that right there may be enough for you to grasp. There's something being offered that's valuable, but read the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. And this ties into one of the ways that God communicates to us that, that people who are dying uh, and need life, uh, people who are dying of thirst and need to be quenched can find it in God. And so uh, the very opening of the Bible, Genesis 2, picturing this garden of God, uh, there's God's presence, there's God's life-giving spirit there's a lot about water, about these rivers, and because it's meant to be a, a place where it's filled with life and, and what grows there bears fruit. And then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, driven out of the garden, the Bible records a history where there are lots of famines. There's lots of periods where it's not raining. There's a lot of thirst. There's a lot of dry and deserty land. And so then as the Bible looks forward, something like Isaiah 55, if you're looking for a place to read, where there's a promise to suffering people, come and drink. Receive water that you cannot buy with money. When you understand that context, the ministry of Jesus becomes a little bit clearer and more profound. And so if you read John's gospel, uh, read through it, looking for where there's echoes of, of water and thirst, and there's a lot of passages. If you don't want to read the whole gospel this week, read John 4, read John 6, read John 7. Uh, Jesus, who comes with an invitation to say, those of you who thirst, come and receive living water, life-giving water. And then it's no surprise that, that John ends his gospel this way in verse 19. Jesus on the cross, this is the account. He says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus is the one that comes and says, if you look to me, I will give you living water. And how does he do it? And he does it by going to the cross, falsely accused unjustly mocked and ridiculed, stripped of his life, 
And what we're told is he became thirsty in order to satisfy the thirst of God's people. He drank the sour wine in order to invite us to a banquet where he would save the best wine for his people. And in verse 12, where it says the wicked are unable to rise, the wicked are able to lie, they're able to accuse, they're able to come up with an unjust trial. But there was only one person who was able to rise, and that shows the vindication that Jesus was uh, not crucified because of some actual injustice or sin in him. But he was crucified because of our sin and injustice, but the grave would not hold him. The wicked are unable to rise, but Jesus was able to rise. And what we're told is that because he experienced that for us, because he drank the sour wine, we, though none of us can claim to be upright, have hope that through faith in him and by his steadfast love and grace, we will rise. That there's a limit of the power the wicked have over us. They don't need to distort our lives, but we can look to God uh, in our hunger and thirst and receive food that will nourish us so that our fate is not like the fate of those who allow uh, wickedness to go deep into their hearts, but we're like those who open our hearts to God and hope that he will fill it with his grace. And so the same John that writes the gospel writes the book of Revelation where the picture at the end of time is Revelation 21 and 22, where there's a banquet we're invited to, where there's water to satisfy, where there's healing of the nations. And so what makes the difference for us is the steadfast love of God. It's not just that God loves, but his love is steadfast. That's verse 5, 7, and 10. That's central in this psalm. You are changing. The world is changing. You'll have good days. You'll have bad days. You'll make good choices. You'll make terrible choices. <clears throat> God's love is steadfast. And it's such that even when you're in the midst of those terrible choices, God's love has not changed, although your ability to see it has. And that's where the gospel is important to remember. If Jesus came to us to be with us in our thirst, if he drank the sour wine in order to redeem us, then what thirst do we have that we cannot look to him for, for satisfaction? So verses 8 and 9, the steadfast love of God is such that God gives them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. And it's that, that belief, the conviction, it's only in God. The world has promised to satisfy me, but it's failing me. But in you is the river of delight. And that word delight, here's a brief Hebrew lesson for you. It's going to be very brief. The word delight is Eden. Uh, you give them drink from the river of your delights. You give them drink from Eden, uh, that place where God was present and his spirit was with you, and there was the hope of fruitfulness. Uh, but you didn't drink those waters, and you left God's presence. Uh, you're invited back. Jesus comes and he says, come and follow me. Where? <laughs> Uh, there, to a banquet, uh, to the place that you long to be, where there are rivers of delight, to the paradise of God, to the place of fruitfulness, because with God is the fountain of life. So verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love. Think about this week, what is precious to you? What is it that you value? What is it that you say, uh, this is what I'm hoping will make my life different? Is it the money that you hope will come into your account? Is it the affirmation you haven't gotten? Is it uh, the breakthrough? Is it the miracle cure? Um, not that it's inappropriate for any of these things to be part of our life and, and our planning, but when those things are precious, when we're desperately holding on to what cannot heal and satisfy us, uh, we're not in a good place. Your precious, steadfast love, O oh Lord. 
The word precious means it's valuable, but it also implies that it's rare. It's something that you don't get everywhere. The kind of love of God that's steadfast, it means you with your imperfect self can remain with God because God's love is steadfast. At the best of times, you see his grace. At the worst of times, he will show you his grace. That is precious. So when you think, or when you, when you reflect on your thoughts at night, um, what is it you hold precious, and how is that feeding the narratives of the self-pity and the revengeful thoughts and the dreams of going out and, and punishing others? And if you replace it to say, well, actually, what, what is precious? <laughs> what is so valuable that if I really took hold of it, it would actually produce a different thing in me? Uh, Psalm 36 says, you can't go wrong by looking to the steadfast love of God, remembering that Christ came uh, for you in his weakness, for your weakness, and he's the one that will lead you forward. I was reading um, an article written by a, a woman who was reflecting on Psalm 136. So Psalm 136, every line has a response, his steadfast love endures forever. So that's the, it just says over and over, his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, the woman shared that as she was reading it, what stood out to her, because when you read about it, 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 when you read Psalm 136, it's this great psalm of joy. Remember the creator, his power, his glory, his steadfast love endures forever. She noted that as this nation reflected on their story, there were hard things in their story that they also remembered in Psalm 136. They remembered they were slaves. They remembered nations came out hoping to destroy them. They remembered that they had to survive under cruel kings. And yet, the refrain continued, his steadfast love endures forever. And she um, uh, did an exercise that struck me as something to leave you with if you're looking, well, what do I do about this? <laughs> you know, how do I deal with uh, this brain of mine that, that I can't just shake out of these negative thoughts? I'm, I'm, too, I'm too shaped and molded. Well, the simple answer is look to Christ, who is your power. When you're finding yourself in real time trying to do uh, what you did, so she suggested, think of the de defining moments of your life and come up with short phrases, short sentences, and take a loose leaf paper or something lined and every other line, just, just leave a space, but write your story. And so she very vulnerably left her story there. And it was, she seems to have loved the family that she grew up with. And she was very grateful for lots of experiences she had. But in that, it was a miscarriage. In that, was a young daughter diagnosed with cancer and years of managing that. And she just wrote out, this is my defining story. And then in between every line, she wrote, his steadfast love endures forever. And when she got to the bottom, she saw the Lord was with me in those moments. I don't need to leave them out of my story. I don't need to understand what God was doing. I need to remember that he was steadfast. He was, he was there when I didn't see it, when I didn't know it, but his steadfast love endures forever. You were invited into the gospel story, a story of God's steadfast love, and however complicated your personal story is, it could be woven through with that narrative that whatever you're in right now, whatever you're facing, his steadfast love endures forever. She shared this exercise because she was in a current situation that she didn't disclose, but she was filled with anxiety. And when she remembered the big picture, she can trust that the Lord doesn't change. His love will not fail. Remembering the good times, but also remembering his faithfulness in the bad times helped her get through the next night where fear was not the dominant voice. The steadfast love of God was. Let that be an anchor for you. Let me pray for us. 
Our Father, we, we gather today to worship, and all of these things about your greatness are true, but if we come with honesty, uh, we are filled with unbelief, we're filled with fear, we're filled with uh, the consequences of our mistakes, we're filled with uh, how this troubled world has impacted us for the worse. And so, Lord, we need more than just a reminder. We need the power of your spirit to heal us, to help us, to, uh, to repair what is broken, to, to take from us what uh, has been dumped into our lives, and to leave us with that peace that passes understanding. Lord, may we all gain wisdom in this time together, that our minds would be sharpened, that we would make good choices and decisions. But we do join with any who are in the thick of it right now, who feel like they're failing, who are without hope. Lord, we pray that the reality of your steadfast love would powerfully enter the lives of all of us, but especially those who need it most today, uh, so that we would endure, so that we wouldn't be dragged down, but we would be lifted up, uh, knowing that if Jesus was raised and promises all who hope in him will be raised, that your steadfast love surely will endure in whatever uh, we're facing this week. We pray for your grace. Uh, continue that steadfast love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.